Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Because this power comes from Zoe, these songs come from Zoe too. So I think when these people are singing, it's always teaching her something about herself. It's going to reflect what's going on with her as well. That's sort of how we are as humans. You know, when we see someone having like an emotional experience and we feel empathy, it's mostly because we can understand that feeling. So for me, I try to just make sure it's as personal as possible for Zoe. And then also, you know, the comedy lies in her needs and how the song is stopping her from getting what she needs. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and this week we'll be hearing from Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist star, Jane Levy. But first, I'm joined by our TV editor, Danette Chavez, who's going to discuss the television nominations uh, for part of the 26th Annual Critics' Choice Awards. Thanks so much for joining, Danette. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for those of you that are unfamiliar, the Critics' Choice Awards announces the nominees in the television categories and then later will announce the nominees for the film categories, even though they all will be announced. Uh, the winners will be announced at the ceremony on March 7th all together. So uh, I'm sure we'll be discussing film in a little bit. But Danette, you're here to talk about TV, which those nominations came out a little bit earlier this week. And uh, some interesting choices there. We actually had Ozark and The Crown leading the pack with six nominations each and a bunch of other shows with five nominations each. Um, but those two leading the pack. And I know Ozark holds an interesting place in the hearts of of the AV Club staff as something at least in my opinion, that we know we should respect. But I, just for me, it's literally, it's sometimes just too dark to watch. Uh, yeah. What are your feelings with those two shows being the being the headliners here? I mean, I, I'm getting a little bit of the like Emmys deja vu that we had. Um, I think we're, I think this is concerning a different season of The Crown, right? But like, I feel like these shows were definitely uh, in a part of the, the pre-Emmys conversation. So there, there's a little bit of deja vu from that. And, you know, seeing Netflix and HBO as like the, the front runners or like, you know, leading the overall number of, uh, nominations. Um, Ozark is a show that, yeah, I, I mean, like, you're not going to glom onto everything that is, you know, popular or even, you know, like well, well received, but that show, eludes me because as you've already stated, it's just so hard to see. And I know that that's kind of like an old, you know, that that's a very stale joke by now to make about Ozark. But if I if I could actually see what was happening, I, I might engage with it more. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's getting old because it's, they maintained that aesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, but it'd be the same if there was audio issues with the with 
with the series, you know, uh, if you can't fully immerse yourself in it, then the, and you know, visuals is a big, important part of it. Uh, you, you know, it, it does, it takes you out of it. It makes it harder for you to enjoy. One of the things that, uh, you know, in previous episodes of push the envelope, I was discussing with our film editor, a Dowd and senior writer, Katie Reif about the different ways that award shows choose their list of nominees and the critics choice awards, puts together kind of nomination panels. And and so this small group of panel, even though the body of voting members of the Critics' Choice Association is large, they, you know, let a group of about 10 people decide the drama categories and then a different group of about 10 people decide the comedy categories and so on and so forth. So what we're really looking at here is is similar to the Globes in that it's a very small number of people deciding who the nominees are, but then more similar to one of the Academy voting bodies in that it's a large body deciding the eventual winner. Um, so I actually was expecting a little bit more of a surprise, some surprises in here in, in the way that we get at Globes where you only need a few people to really advocate for an actor or a series to get it on this list. Uh, so I was expecting, you know, a little P-Valley maybe, um, there, there was some, there were some other, there were some other choices, and I know from insider knowledge that you know we ended up with a lot of high profile shows here, but that there was a large discussion of like even the Good Doctor has its fans among the voting body. So I'm actually surprised none of that ended up actually making making it onto some of these lists. But as we mentioned, Ozark and The Crown, um, The Crown obviously being for the most recent season, um, these are taking into consideration series that aired in the calendar year of 2020, you know, otherwise known as the year we pretend <laughs> didn't exist or, or at least want to, um, which I think is is rightfully so. The way that they, the way that both of those shows got to six nominations is that they got a series nominations, acting nominations in all four of the Best Actor, Best mm. Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Actress categories, but then they got an additional one. So Ozark had both Julia Garner and Janet McTeer uh, nominated in Supporting, and we also had uh, two Best Actresses for The Crown in Olivia Colman and Emma Corrin, Emma Corrin playing Princess Diana, uh, who I thought did a fantastic job. What do you feel about, uh, you know, we've, we've discussed The Crown and kind of how it ebbs and flows. Uh, what were your feelings on on this season compared to previous ones in terms of getting getting recognized? I mean, I, I think like like another nominee uh, in this list, uh, Perry Mason, It for, for me, it, it, it came down to performances over actual narrative. And so like, it makes sense to me that we would see so many of the actors nominated, you know, it, it, across the acting categories. I mean, I, I, it makes sense that it was also nominated for best drama, but the crown is always, I mean, the crown has always been for me, one of those shows that I'll watch uh, when I have time. <laughs> it's not something um, <laughs> I necessarily devour right away. Although we talked a bit about this last year, the year that shall not be named, um, <laughs> but, you know, about how like this is perhaps the first season of the show where, you know, viewers have more or, you know, the majority of viewers have more of a sense of the history that's unfolding. Like, you know, we know the, you know, the the wedding scene, you know, like we, we know that dress and, you know, there there was actually a whole exhibit, right? Like a, a virtual exhibit about the uh, the wardrobe and the costuming this season, because so many of those looks are things that are branded in the public consciousness that, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just slightly younger viewership. And so people, th these are things that we're more likely to remember than, you know, 
the Claire Foy years. Yeah, well, I think there's there's a couple of different things they're going that that the the royals were so much more private in general. So even if you were alive during that time, there probably was a lot that you were learning during the crown if you weren't already, you know, way into studying royalty that you weren't familiar with just because there wasn't, you know, television as much. There wasn't, you know, there there was there was just aspects of their lives we weren't as familiar with. But that's also why I think it's so impressive that you have Emma Corrin and and Josh O'Connor, who's also nominated for Best Actor, playing Princess Diana and Prince Charles, because they are character or they're people, the characters in in our mind in pop culture uh, that we are so familiar with, and we and while we've been told that there's elements of their story that we aren't familiar with, and we get to see that a little bit in the Crown, they still are taking on moments uh, that we that we know so well, and and they were able to kind of create these characters that were at once the people we know, but also make them their own, which I think is a really difficult, you know, high wire act. And I, I think they both accomplished it really well. You, of course, also have Gillian Anderson nominated and support as supporting actress for The Crown, uh, but not Helena Bonham Carter, who did have, I believe, less to do this year than she did last year when she uh, was getting so recognized for playing Princess Margaret. But uh, you know, she still had some fantastic episodes. I think uh, ultimately uh, Gillian Anderson just was given more to do and and that's a little bit why we why we see why we see her here. I think it's also interesting the nominations for this all took place in 2021. So anyone who watches The Mandalorian would have had the chance to watch the end of the season, which we don't have to go into major <laughs> discussion here uh, in case there's anyone that hasn't yet. But I I do wonder how much the, I wonder if The Mandalorian would have made the best drama series category if people hadn't gotten to see those final those final couple episodes because I do think that that landed the series in a way that the first half while entertaining um maybe wouldn't have gotten recognized as much. Yeah, I mean the you know the the Emmys recognized the first season which was, you know, a, a huge thing for Disney Plus to have, you know, something from its inaugural lineup get that kind of award recognition. I do think you're right that this season maybe didn't start off, the second season rather, didn't start off with quite as much of a bang as the first season. And yeah, like I'm sure being able to see that back half of the season, and you know, there's also just the recency thing. I mean, that wrapped up in late November, you know, so that's, that was probably still fairly fresh in people's minds. Um, I do, it's interesting to me to see Lovecraft Country in here, because that is a show that um, it, it proved a bit divisive, you know, like uh, I, I loved how it became appointment television for a lot of people. Like, you know, just every Sunday night, you know, seeing, you know, the, the tweets start as soon as the airtime or, you know, as soon as the episode began to air. But that that is a show that I think really struggled with its consistency. There were some like fantastic episodes but I mean, I, I guess if nothing else, it took some really big swings and maybe that's what's being recognized here. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think there was there was fantastic moments, as you mentioned, and, and fantastic performances. So I think it's great that we have an uh, actor represented in each of the four acting categories. We have Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett, Michael K. Williams, Wunmi Masaku. And I think even more people from that show could have been recognized. Uh, but I, I am, if it was left entirely up to me, I'm not sure that 
the series itself would have made the list of best series, but I'm glad that the acting nominations happened there. One that I am glad to see recognized that doesn't uh, always get the love I think it deserves is is The Good Fight. I personally think it it's just such a fantastic show. And um, we have the series nominated as well as Christine Baranski, which, which is great. And then we also have Better Call Saul, which uh, we saw at the Emmys really not get much attention at all, only in, I believe, the guest acting categories. Mm. Um, and here we have uh, have it up for series, and and I think that that's well deserved as well as Bob Odenkirk for for best actor. And I think you know those are well deserved, and I'm glad to see it there. And and of course we have Ray Seahorn in best supporting, and I know we have a bunch of fans of, of her at the AV Club, and think that that is so well deserved. In the same breath, you know, while This Is Us definitely I believe took a dip after its first couple of really strong seasons. The work they've been doing this year has been super, super strong. I think it's really impressive how they took storylines that they started working on and laying the groundwork for pre-COVID and somehow reconfigured them to, because obviously they, they mess with timelines, reconfigured them to make COVID make sense in that world in a way that seems as though they were planning it. So, you know, conspiracy theory, like they they knew ahead of time or something because it, it's been very, very impressive um, to see them tackle what's been going on, both with COVID as well as the Black Lives Matter protests and movement up from the summer. Like they really were able to incorporate a lot of real world stuff very quickly in a season that I know that they've been filming under intense COVID precautions. So so I'm glad to see uh, the series as as well as Sterling K. Brown and Justin Hartley, who really has stepped it up this season with, with uh, the material he's been given and, and has risen to the occasion. So I think that's fantastic. I'm always happy to see Sterling K. Brown at an award show. I have not watched This Is Us past the first season. Um, Which is fair. You know, Many like people it, didn't. <laughs> but I mean, I, I will say that... Um, you know, that that is one of the few shows that has managed to keep... I mean, you know, like, this is something that's an ongoing topic of discussion, and it's, should all shows incorporate the pandemic into their storylines? Like, some of them, you know, like, Grey's Anatomy, for example, has actually handled it very well. But, you know, it, it also sounds like This Is Us has managed to find a way to incorporate it without it feeling like a stunt, without it, you know, like, oh, it, it, like that that moment in The Simpsons where Krusty continues to broadcast, even though, you know, like he goes out to like that emergency, like broadcast station and he uses that signal <laughs> to continue to do a show. Like it doesn't <laughs> feel like that kind of act of desperation. It, it sounds like they are handling it very thoughtfully. I 100% agree. And I think uh it's nice to see that recognized, particularly because a lot of award shows like to recognize the new bright, shiny thing. And so for for us to see not just This Is Us, but to see, uh, you know, I mean, we mentioned our personal feelings, but to see Ozark after so many seasons, um, to see The Good Fight and Better Call Saul, like, I'm glad that the Critics' Choice Association is willing to say, just because something's been on for for many years doesn't mean that we shouldn't still recognize that it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, obviously, the Critics' Choice Awards encompass far more than just drama series. Uh, so Danette's actually going to be joining us next week to discuss both the comedy series as well as limited series or made-for-television movie categories. So I'm grateful that you're going to make yourself available for that, Danette. But if you happen to miss that episode, just make sure that you tune in Sunday, March 7th on The CW, when Tay Diggs will host the ceremony awarding all these fantastic series. For now, we're going to talk about another fantastic series, which is Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which airs on NBC. It currently is airing the 
second season, which started just a few weeks ago, and stars Jane Levy as a woman who suddenly is able to hear people's inner thoughts, but they are, are presented to her in the form of songs, or in the world of the show, they call them heart songs. Uh, the show takes place at work, at home, where she's dealing with the recent death of her father, who was played by Peter Gallagher. And the series returned recently after the death of Peter Gallagher's character, in which Jane Levy's character was suffering uh, through a lot of grief and was no longer hearing her heart songs. Of course, the show being what it is, we start hearing them again soon after. And I recently got the chance to chat with Jane Levy about coming back to the show, filming during COVID, and what it's like to uh, to put together full-on musical numbers, multiple musical numbers, week after week, and still tell a fantastic story. So let's take a little bit of a listen to that conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Got a lot of fans of the show on the site. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been really fun to see this show grow because you all got to experience filming season one in in kind of isolation in a way. Um, You guys had had this completed project that you just presented to the world. And now to come back for season two, was that added pressure? Was that less pressure knowing that it was already uh, it was already finding its home in, in viewers hearts? Yeah, you're touching on something that I have been thinking about a lot. And, you know, I actually think the opposite is true. Maybe not for Austin, our showrunner. For me, I was, I think, more, and it might have just been a personal thing where leading a show like this is a lot of pressure and I put a lot of pressure on myself. And so I was pretty stressed out when we were making the first season. But now I sort of feel like I have my bearings and I really understand Zoe. I've spent so much of my life in the last year thinking about her and her experience and why she does what she does. And so for me, I feel really uh, humbled and it's so gratifying to make something that people watch and not only watch that they connect with. And so I just feel really lucky in that way. And I, I feel a lot more comfortable this year. You know, that's not including you know, obviously the pandemic, but um, just in playing this character. And I think, yeah, you're right. It's it's cool for me as well to read the scripts and watch the show grow and develop and shift because, you know, what we saw um, episode two is Zoe joining in in the musical numbers in, in new ways. And that's really exciting for me because we're halfway through season two and we've shot 97 musical numbers. So that's a lot. And I am constantly in conversation about how can we have Zoe join in in creative ways because, you know, I liken it to a dream. If you suddenly knew how to wake up in your dreams all the time, you would start experimenting, you know? And it's hard because I'm in so much of this show that there isn't that much time for me to rehearse. So I can't really be in the rehearsal processes for the other actors' musical numbers. So for me to get involved is a little bit tricky because I usually learn my path on the day because I'm in all the musical numbers. Um, Anyways, I answered a lot of your question, but I think it encompasses a lot of different things that I've been thinking about. Yeah, well, I mean, two things about the scene from episode two that that you get involved in the musical number in is one, obviously that was, that's a big moment that I want to talk about, but two, that whole act. So we go from commercial back to you guys in a bedroom 
And that's the whole scene. Like that's the whole thing until we go to commercial again, which is, which is relatively unseen in network television. You know, usually you get, uh, you know, cuts to a few different storylines in between commercial breaks. Uh, talk to us a little bit about filming that scene with, with Skylar. Yeah. I think what's really special about this show is that the musical numbers, I think are often scenes themselves and there will be times when we will do a scene and then a musical number and then a scene after it. And afterwards, I'm kind of like, well, we kind of didn't even need the scene because the story is told in the musical number. And this is one of those examples where I feel like it used all of our show's strengths in a really smart way. You know, Skylar is highly trained in musical theater and he has done many shows on Broadway. And if there's anyone that can do a mashup of take me out to the ball game and boys to men, it's definitely him. And so I think it was, you know, perfect for his instrument. I think that it was really clever in the way that it used the device, which is that I can hear people's thoughts in a new way where, you know, he's gone to therapy and he's figured out a way to sort of stop himself from having a heart song so the take me out to the ball game, both my parents texted me and they were like, why is he singing take me out to the ball game? <laughs> I was like, because mom, he's trying to not sing the heart song. And she was like, okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, he's fantastic. Mandy's fantastic. That was highly choreographed. You know, sometimes we do musical numbers where there's room for improvisation. Like I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. There's certain numbers where there's room for that. But then this one, it's like every single moment was choreographed, including my reactions, you know, which it's not always like that. And it was really fun. Um, it took a day and a half. Usually we shoot a musical number in a couple hours. And yeah, it was really cool to be able to join in and to have a duet. You know, I mean, it's Skylar Aston is such an incredible, uh, well, actor, but vocal talent. And, you know, you go, you go toe to toe in the intimacy of that moment and the fact that it was chosen that, that he's singing with the score behind him as you may be hearing it, but you're singing a cappella because that's what he's hearing. Like it was all so beautifully done, but walk me through what it was like to kind of determine how to act those scenes as someone is, I'm sure, obviously a lot of times it's, it's to a recording, but they are still singing live because of the lip syncing you want it to look real in your, like, sometimes they are like literally inches away from your face and you have to choose how to react to that. You know, it's funny. This is the question that comes up the most. And I, and I don't have a great answer. Every time I answer this question, I'm like, God, I sound like such an imbecile. Like I, I like, I'm like, let me tell you about my process and like what I've decided, my character, whatever. I, you know, I'll take it as a compliment that this comes up because I hope it means that it's like people like it or something. But, um, you know, I'm just, acting. I take my, I I take my acting powder that morning. I put it in my smoothie and I blend it up and I drink it. No, I'm kidding. I, one, I'm actually hearing music that my co-stars have sent. Usually the the music is playing. Two, they're either acting to me or oftentimes we shoot my reactions after the musical number so that the actor has all the time that they need to be able to do this thing. That's quite hard. And then, so sometimes they're tired. So then someone will stand in for them and I'll be acting to oftentimes our choreographers who know the movements. But for me, I think that because this power comes from Zoe, these songs come from Zoe too. So I think when these people are singing, 
it's either teaching her something about, it's always teaching her something about herself. It's going to reflect what's going on with her as well. That's sort of how we are as humans. You know, when we see someone having like an emotional experience and we feel empathy, it's mostly because we can understand that feeling, you know? So for me, I try to just make sure it's as personal enough, it's as personal as possible for Zoe. And then also, you know, the comedy lies in her needs and how the song is stopping her from getting what she needs, you know? So in this instance, she needs, I was going to say nookie because that's what was in the script. And I remember saying to Austin, like, I don't think I can say nookie out loud. And now I just said it on a podcast. So she needs to feel good and she needs to have this experience, which is sex, but she can't because this person's acting like a lunatic in front of her. And so I just try to make it personal for Zoe and her experience. We, we know the showrunner Austin Winsberg has said that he is intrigued with the idea of exploring the mythology behind Zoe's power, but that he doesn't really feel it's necessary to spend a lot of time diving into it, uh, at least not currently. But how much time have you spent wondering or worrying or discussing that mythology? A lot. I think about it all the time. And I don't agree with Austin in this regard. I really think it would be great and fun and interesting to explore that. And maybe he doesn't mean forever, but it's just not on the the to-do list for the time being. But I think it's incredibly important because in season one, you know, we saw her get this power at this really pivotal time in her life where she's losing someone. And I think that's very connected. And I don't necessarily think about like who gave it to her and what God is like pulling the strings up there. But I do think about like, why and what does this power, how does this power change her? And I think that it's a really important part of the story that I I, I believe that we'll get to at some point because, you know, this show is going to go on for years. Just putting that out there. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. I think that it's, it's, you know, season one was so personal and not that the show doesn't remain personal for Austin, but I know obviously it, it followed his experience um, with his dealing with his father's illness. And obviously you had Peter Gallagher playing your father who has a rare form of palsy. And we see him pass at the end of season one. Talk to me a little bit about taking on a character that obviously is not Austin, but uh, it was so inspired by his experiences uh, and to move past that in a way. Right. Well, I just think it's so beautiful, um, the story behind this. And I think that Austin is really, really good at writing his guts. And I think that when he writes so personally, it affects me so personally. And then in turn, it affects the audience so personally. And I just think what a beautiful way to honor his father than to write this show. And... Yeah, you know, I it was never really like hard because I, I didn't feel like I was playing Austin. I think we're all sort of bits of Austin. Like I think Max is a bit of Austin. Zoe's a bit of Austin. David is a bit of Austin. I think that's normally how it goes with writers. I don't know if writers get offended by that when they're like, no, I'm a writer. It's fiction. It's not me. But in this case, yes, it, it's a personal story for him. And there was times when he would be like, well, where I'll be like, this part of the script, I don't quite understand. And he was like, well, actually that's based off of what happened with my family. And then he'll explain stuff to me. And it's really helpful because I've, I've never lost a parent. I mean, I have suffered grief and I've lost people in my life, but I've never had this experience and having his firsthand experience told to me um, was really informative. And he gave us space. Like, it wasn't like he was like, no, this was my experience and you have to do it this way. But yeah, there I think there was a lot of discussions with Peter about, you know, how this, rare disease, how it shows up, you know? 
And um, yeah, I just feel really lucky that he decided to write the story and then he hired me to play Zoe. In terms of the the musical numbers, what is the vibe like when you guys are doing that? Because I imagine that there's an immense pressure, but it's also a lot of fun. Yeah, especially at this point, since we've done so many and Mandy is so like, she's got it so dialed that it's actually quite quick. Like when they, we come, when they come, I always talk about them like descending because they have this dance studio above where we shoot. And so they come down and they, they show up and the music starts playing. And it's usually like they've, they've rehearsed it so much that it doesn't take that long. And, and the pressure is, it's less scary. Like I think towards the beginning when we were all finding our footing, like all of us actors were like, maybe not Skylar, but a lot of us were like, oh shit, shit, shit. This is like our time where we do this thing that we're all so scared about because it matters so much and it's vulnerable. But now that we've done it a bit, I think everybody's much more comfortable. And yeah, it's a really, the vibe is like joy, you know, like it's just always, you know, we're always tired because that's what it's like shooting anything. The cast, the crew, everybody. And then the minute the musical number starts, there's just a shift in energy and everybody is like inspired again. We, we pick up with season two uh, after a time jump. You know, Zoe is going through an immense amount of grief. Talk to me a little bit about what the conversations were like behind the scenes and the decision to do that time jump and what that meant for you as an actor playing someone that had that experience that we don't really get to see. Well, there was a lot of parallels between that and what was happening in the world at large. Zoe has been living with her mom. She hasn't really left the house for six weeks. And season two opens with her sort of having to re-enter the world. And so I think that that was sort of a nod to the pandemic, you know, and um, all of us sort of like incubating at home and dealing with grief and fear and moments of hope and trying to connect, but having a hard time, you know, like all of that, that I think we are collectively going through. Zoe was going through in a different way. Obviously the pandemic doesn't exist in this world. So I think the other point of that was to tell the story that a musical number that a um, heart song hasn't been sung to her since her dad died. And so for me, it was like a little meta in that I had just been home for six months and I hadn't seen any of my friends or my co-stars or gathered with anybody since the last season, really like um, the shutdown happened right after we finished season one. So I guess in some ways I didn't have to work so hard to like bring that six week history to this character. I think that the, the main thing that happens at the beginning of the season is that she hears a heart song again and it's a very big, loud one and it's all, directed right at her uh it was it was very funny and it's also funny knowing that harvey uh again was going to have an arc on the show but have him just be someone in that number uh was super fun i'm i'm so uh ha- <laughs> i'm like giddy that we got harvey he is so much fun to act with and he sings britney spears i don't i hope that's not a big deal that i just shared that i'm not gonna tell you which song but he fucking kills it. Like, wow. We were all like, damn. <laughs> I'm, I personally am so excited to see that. Um, what, what was the question? Sorry. <laughs> well, what else can you tease for us in terms of what's, what's coming up? Right. Totally. Um, Zoe turns 30 this year and I'm 
really excited for people to see that episode. It's a special episode. It's actually turned out to be episode eight. And episode eight last year was a very special episode for Zoe and I as well. Zoe and me. Um, uh, Eight has always been my lucky number. So I'm excited about that. Um, There is an episode about racism at SparkPoint. And Jon Stewart performs some of the most amazing musical numbers I've seen on the show. There's, I think, three that stand out. But he he really blew me away this year. Oh, Zoe may or may not get high on drugs. And when she's high on drugs, sing a musical, sing a song. Yeah, I was, that was going to be my closing thing is how much more are we going to get to see of, of Zoe getting involved and, and her vocal abilities, uh, which it was, uh, you know, uh, a, a nice, sweet, tender moment there. But I'm ready to see you go full on out. Yeah, me too. Uh, not much this year. You know, um, I wish there was more. You know, there's still half of a season to go. So maybe you'll see some more, but not that much more singing for Zoe. Well, there you have it. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope. You can check out Jane Levy on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlists. New episodes drop every Tuesday on NBC. And of course, the entire series is available for streaming on Peacock. Uh, And you can check me out on social media at at Patrick Gomez LA. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to remember to like and comment and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. And we hope that you'll join us next week. Until then, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.